0: Welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint. Hey, I'm Tony. Welcome back. And we have a treat for you today. Our guest is Dr. Pete Enns. He's got a PhD from Harvard University, and he's the co-host of The Bible for Normal People, hugely popular podcast, author of many books, many of which have been deeply impactful in my own faith journey, as we'll talk about. In the podcast and for Tony as well.
1: Yeah, you've heard me reference his books all the time. Anytime I talk about the sin of certainty, that's that's Pete ends. Here's one behind us. Here's one. How the Bible actually works. Just a brilliant mind, great guy to talk to. So um in this conversation, we talk about inerrancy, authority, inspiration. We talk about how we should introduce scripture to our kids and when. Um what else do we touch on? Am I missing anything? Tradition and its role. Yeah, we don't want to spoil all this. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but you're gonna like this. So um Hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, if you like this sort of thing, subscribe. Uh, If you want to reach out to us or join the conversation, you can leave a comment on this YouTube video, or if you're just listening, you can write to us mailbag at opentotruth.com and uh, we'll answer your questions and interact with you.
0: And I present you, Pete Enns. Well, Pete, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Clint. Appreciate it. You too, Tony. Yeah, thanks for being here, man.
0: And yeah, we just mentioned a moment ago before we hit record, but Tony and I are both just uh, have been really moved by your work, uh, just your books over the years, your podcast, uh, different lectures that you can find online where you've spoken at churches and stuff, just really impactful in our faith journey and just trying to figure this out, what to do with the Bible, what is it and what to do with
1: it. Um, Yeah, your books, your books made me feel like I wasn't crazy for asking the questions Mm. I was asking and, and thinking what I was thinking. That would have, in the culture I was in at the time, been considered dangerous questions or dangerous ideas to ask. Many people weren't willing to entertain the conversation with me. But coming across your books, I was like, okay, I'm not the only one out there who's walking through this. Right. So, yeah, I so. And agree. the thing
2: is, they are dangerous ideas. Yeah. And, and I mean that gently, but they are dangerous ideas within a certain kind of way of thinking. Sure. And um, it's okay to acknowledge that, I guess. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, I appreciate that guys. Isn't it wonderful that we have internet and all that other kind of stuff to create community with people so they don't feel alone. And, um, you know, reading a book is one thing, but, uh, hearing people talk and seeing them talk, it's a totally different thing. Absolutely. yeah.
3: Mm Yeah.
0: Well, a lot to get to just burning questions for me, but I think a helpful starting place could be, and anyone can read this on, your little about me section on pdens.com. I just thought it was a, a neat place to start. So you list a couple of questions that you find interesting that you enjoy talking about. And so here they are. What is the Bible? What are we supposed to do with it? Why should anyone care? What does God want? Is God real? Mm. And then there's this great line. These sorts of questions are an expression of my faith, not a problem for my faith. Could you unpack that, what you mean by questions being expression rather than a problem?
2: Yeah, um, I think people who are not on a faith journey, and let me just stop there for a second, because I know it's a bit trite and people don't like the language. I do like it because I actually think that's what it is. And the journey is not always comfortable. It's very uncomfortable sometimes. And I'd rather just sit on my couch and eat. Potato chips and watch baseball or something. So the journeys are not. Oh, it's a journey. Oh, no, it's a journey. That's more the the mm-hmm. feeling. So, mm-hmm. so it is it is a journey of faith that I think people are on, and it's only people who are on that journey who ask those kinds of questions. So it's not outside of that journey, but it's within that journey of faith that you ask those kinds of questions, which are uh, based on us not knowing a lot of answers that we'd love to have answers to. So. And and I think the reason why, it, for me, it's not just, well, it's okay to do that. It's more a positive thing to do that. Not to force it, but when it comes, it comes, right? But it's positive because it pushes you to, I think, another sort of stage of faith. That's not the best way to put it. I'm not sure how, how better to put it at the moment, but um, where the reliance becomes more on God and less on our theologies. So yeah. in that sense, those, those doubting times, they do something that nothing else can really do for us. And, and, you know, I've talked with people who say, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm really, really going through something difficult. And, I say, yeah, and I think that has to be that way or those other moments won't come at all. But you don't understand everything's falling apart. Actually, I do understand everything's falling apart. No, you don't believe everything's dark. Don't you understand? I do understand. It has to get there. And it can't be sort of a casual journey where you sort of walk a few steps and go back inside again. Mm. I say, I'm journeying. Oh, I'm really, you know, um, the struggles are sort of like controlled in that sense. You know, you go out for a while, it's a little uncomfortable, but you come back inside again. We don't, we don't get that option. It just. It is what it is. And it's at the end of the day, I think it's all a normal part of who we are as people of faith.
1: I, I love what you just said about it, it requiring us to trust God more. I, people who listen to this podcast, regular listens, will, will have heard me reference your book, The Sin of Certainty, which was probably the biggest game changer for me. The, the Bible tells me so as well. But Sin of Certainty for me was like an aha moment, it was, oh, my need to get all my theology mm-hmm. perfectly straight and aligned, my believies, my mental furniture, that's actually a need for mm-hmm. control. And yeah. maybe what God wants is for me to give up some control and instead have some trust. Uh, so thank mm-hmm. you for offering that perspective.
2: Sure, yeah. Uh, and I wish we could, well, I think the trick is taking the exploration seriously and even coming up with some answers. hmm right? I have tons of answers, it's, but it's more like not hanging on to those. is like, okay, now I've arrived. Yeah. Right. Cause something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. It's going to go all kablooey. It can be like anything, a little thing. Like you just watched a movie that made you think about reality differently or yeah. tragedies happen and, and other sorts of challenges. So um, there, there's nothing wrong with having answers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how we position those answers as being of ultimate concern to us. And, that's when we eventually get into trouble, I think. That's great.
0: So you describe this avatar of a person who is like, "Oh, but it's a, it's really bad. It, this is a dark journey." Like, yeah, I understand. What what is that coming from? That understanding? Could you share just a brief sketch of your journey? And what that's looked like for you, coming out on maybe the other side, of or still, you know, in the midst of
2: it? A, a brief sketch of how messed up I am. Sure, no problem. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's talk about that. No, you know, it's it's hard, Clint, to. Um, to map that out, I, I would, I mean, I, I, have had experiences that I think have all culminated in just this thing that's been going on. And I like that because I haven't scripted this at all. Mm-hmm. It just is sort of coming, but I think probably, you know, long story, very long story, very short, uh, probably it was a culmination of things family related and also professionally related that, um, Everything that I sort of the anchors of the foundations were just they were crumbling pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and happening over a series of several years. And I write about both. I write about the family uh, matter involving my daughter and the sin of certainty. She gave me permission to talk about it. And um, my my job, I talk about that a little bit. And the Bible tells me so. So it's it's out there, you Mm -hmm. know, these things. But just to bring them together. Those things were sort of colliding at the same time, and uh, I wound up leaving where I was a a teacher before at a seminary, and um, it was six months of bliss, of just being out from under something where I just knew I didn't belong, and it was difficult, and people were sort of after me on a regular basis, and to be free of that, I was exercising, I was so happy sitting under trees. That lasted about six months, and then everything started crashing down because... I the, I, the structure, this is what's so frightening about being on this journey. The, the thing that gave me structure to my faith was taken away. Yeah. My faith was sort of on autopilot for many years because I was in a system that required a pretty strict subscription and you just sort of do it. And that's not dishonest. It's just, you're not on autopilot. You're not, not thinking about it. But then leaving, I began to understand that nothing Everything that was holding my faith together is now gone. It's not there. So I remember just I remember the scene. I'm standing in my bedroom just looking out the window and this little voice inside of me goes, Well, Pete, what do you believe now that nobody's telling you? Yeah. And my answer was, I haven't the foggiest idea what I believe. And I and I didn't. And (laughs) and I began not just entertaining on a um uh, on a sort of a comfortably distant kind of uh, manner, but really existentially deep down inside, what if there is no God?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. What if none of this makes sense? What if we're all just making this up? And I was sort of in that for about a year or so, I'd say, in various degrees. But, you know, there were times when I was, um, I remember once lying on my uh, a sofa in my little office at home. And just lying there, just mourning the fact that I would, I'll never sing another Christmas carol again. Silly little thing, but Mm. you know, we raised kids and we had traditions and things like that. And so I was mourning a, a narrative of my life that was very familiar and not just comfortable, but satisfying. And that was pretty much all taken away. And when it started going away, it went away very quickly because I could see the pieces connecting and I'm not going to lie to myself. So we just sort of went along with it. And um, I think what helped me, I don't want to say come out of it, but more pass through it and come out differently on the other side is just people who understood this whole process. Mm -hmm. And it really helped that I knew people who were very much into contemplative Christianity or some sort of a mystical expression of Christianity Mm -hmm. that transcended some of the rationalistic uh, arguments I had in my head or scholastic kinds of things, academic things, which I really value, but, um, but bypass, not bypassing, but not allowing your left brain essentially to control all of reality. That's really what it came down to for me. And, and I was able to let go of that need for certainty. And it, it's, you know, the sin of certainty was, it didn't come out for about six or seven years, but that's when that book was born. When I could start seeing the pieces connecting.
3: Wow. So
0: you said, I caught a little word in that story that intrigued me. You said, and we passed through it. And I think you meant maybe your family. Um, cause you're, um,
2: Oh, you have children. That and- was a Freudian slip. <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's my, my, my split personality or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: but it got me thinking you know to your point at the beginning with the academic professional part and the family part yeah i am not just this isolated individual like i'm deeply right. embedded in these relationships and when mm-hmm. i was and still am kind of going through some of this stuff i have a spouse i'm
1: raising four kids right now and mm-hmm. um well you are someone else's anchor in a way right like for your kids right as they are forming right. a map of the world where am i who am mm-hmm. i is it safe they're looking at. Dad, what does dad say about this? What right. does dad think about right. this? So, right. I mean, there's
0: a very real sense where like my wife, Sarah is just, she's along for the ride that I'm on, whether she likes mm-hmm. it or not. Like I've like to your point. Like if I, she was ready to start right. asking
1: questions, what have <laughs> come into the house, honey? So yeah, <laughs> the questions are mm-hmm. here.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Right. So I didn't ask a question, but I guess my question would be. No,
2: I think I, yeah. c- I see the question. It's a really common one and it's, it's important one because we're not just individuals I mean, you have to do what you have to do, right? Because you can't be a good father or husband if you're lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do that uh, deal with other people? See, in my sense, the we was not a reference to my family, because when I left uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in 2008, uh, give me a second here, my son was... 21, my daughter was, um, 18 and my other daughter was 15 or 16. So okay. they're, they they were not little kids anymore. Yep. And when I left, I, I, I came home kicking the dog for a few years, mm. you know? And, and, and the thing is like, when I, when I told them I was resigning, they said, it's about time, dad, I mean, <laughs> place is killing you, you know? So it wasn't really an issue. And then the whole, um, the, the the I guess, the transformation, so to speak, of of my own personal faith over a year and a half. I didn't really talk about it to many people, mm-hmm. you know, and plus, you know, my son was in just out of college and living on his own. And my other daughter was in college, and one was in high school. And what does she care about my her dad, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it, it wasn't the same kind of thing. And, um, you know, we were, I mean, we were never our family and Sue, my wife, we were never, you know, a fundamentalist family. So, the baggage wasn't there. Mm. And, um, but you know, so there was, I, 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 unlike many people, there are no family implications for me of all of this, Mm. which I am very happy about because I know people whose families are torn apart Mm. over these kinds of things. And, and that's a different kind of question. Like how does the person who's on the move handle the fact that you go to a certain kind of church? And your kids are happy there, and your wife or your wife or husband has friends there, and that those are difficult questions to answer. And and um, I think each one has to answer those in a way that makes most sense in their lives.
3: Mm-hmm. Can I wish
2: I could give a blanket answer to it, but I can't. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, can I ask that that you say it about a year and a half of sort of when you hit theological rock bottom and started to rebuild?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: When you found yourself staring out that window thinking, I don't know what the heck I believe. How did you yeah. then? Even that next week, how did you carry on aiming yourself through life? Like, if if none of the Christianity stuff is true, and then how should I move in the world? How should I relate to people? What should I be aiming at? What should I be moving towards? What, what did you fall back on? Right. What, what? How? Just well, how bedrock well, did we get?
2: Yeah, I mean, pretty bedrock. I mean, I was. I, I remember vaguely. Just lying in bed for long parts of the day just thinking wow or just or just reading things you know i was i i think i i mean this is my temperament but i think at that point i just took it upon myself to say okay we're going to do this let's do it and i started reading a lot of things that were of a more like generally spiritual kind of nature Mm -hmm. and i got interested in um Gosh, now I forgot what it was. Not the Enneagram, the other one that nobody does anymore. Uh, I'm an INTJ. The Maya's bridge. personality. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, yes. But just just trying to explore myself, mm-hmm. which is really good Christian advice, by the way. I mean, yeah. I think many people don't do that. but And just trying to understand myself and what makes me tick. And I was thinking of leaving the whole field of Christian writing or Christian teaching and Cause jobs are hard to come by and I had a severance that was going to last me for a while. So I had to think about that. And I was thinking of becoming a private high school, like administrator or something like that yeah, for right. a while. And, um, but that never really would have worked out for me. I would have been fired probably <laughs> inside of a week. <laughs> sure. Um, but you know, I, I think it's, I don't know what, I don't really know how to answer that question okay. because I just kept moving. Yeah. And maybe that's the German in me. You know, the, there's this wonderful German saying, Du kannst und du sollst. You can because you have to. Oh, I don't weird. have an option to lie in bed all day. Yeah. I don't because mm-hmm. I have. I still have responsibilities at home. And, yeah. and um, was I depressed? I don't. Maybe I was more in shock, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and trying to process it all, you know. But uh, yeah. But little things happen i mean one little thing if i can sort of relay a little story i think i talk about this in the sense of certainty but one was coming across a story of mother Teresa on the internet that helped me a lot i tell my college students what helped me most was meeting a woman on the internet and they don't think that's funny at all so yeah. um but um and it was a story of john Kavanaugh, who was a moral philosopher i think at saint louis university which i think is a jesuit school but he was having his own faith crisis and he um, went to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta and met her. And she said, you know, um, what can I do for you? And he says, you can pray for me. She goes, how can I pray for you? And he goes, pray that I have, what's the word that he used? Um, Not, uh, not, not really, not more like conviction or certainty or pray that I have some centeredness. And, um, she said, no, I will not pray for that. And he goes, well, why not? Because what you're looking to hold on to is exactly the thing you have to let go of. Wow. And I read that, and when I kept going, and then he said, well, you seem to have a lot of sense of centeredness, conviction. And she said, I've never had that sense of certainty in my life, but what I've had is trust. Mm. So I will pray that you trust rather than seek that kind of an anchor for yourself. And And I read that and I just stopped and I stared at the screen and I said, that's it. (laughs) That's where I've been going wrong. I've been trying to wrap my head around something, whereas this journey really was more about learning to let go of wrapping my head around everything and respect my head, but not live in it and take cues from other people who throughout the history of the church who are very wise and have passed through these things and getting acquainted with things like the Dark Knight of the Soul and um, St. John of the Cross and some others in the medieval period. and, And by no means expert, just, you know, casually reading and talking to people. That's all you need. You know, you don't have to become an expert in any of these things. Just become acquainted that there are other ways of doing this. Besides the way that many churches sort of assume you should be doing it, which is being sure of everything you believe. And if you don't, you've got a problem you have to work out.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, and I, forgive me if this is too amateur psychology. I'm not a psychologist, but <laughs> okay. what that's a pretty complicated cognitive <coughs> task of holding things in tension or being OK with uncertainty, particularly when you compare it to a child, like I have a seven, five, two, an infant, four kids. And at that stage, it just seems wow. tough to ask them, if this, if this is indeed like the, the higher path, to ask them to hold things in tension, they want hard answers. Mm. Da- Dad, where'd God mm-hmm. come from? Or why, why does it rain? You know, or just a whole <laughs> host of questions well, you yeah. could ask, theological, science. So when it's a, when it's a science question, maybe like why does it rain i can i could do my best to walk through evaporation right. and all that stuff yeah um but i'm giving mm-hmm. them like a little factoid now when it comes to theology though where i like you i i find that a winsome helpful way to think about it of holding things in tension and not clinging to certainty mm-hmm. how do you raise kids um i guess to you yeah, know be
1: on that or do, or do you have you know? to go through a stage of like Black and white, and then gradually give that up, and you know, give up the certainty as you mature and you're mm-hmm. able to hold things in tension. I don't know.
2: Perhaps <laughs> uh, I mean I think. What, see, not to put words in your mouth, Glenn, but mm-hmm. what I'm hearing, I've heard from uh, from you know many people too, and I've asked it myself. Um, it works for you, but kids need something more certain. Let's mm-hmm. say. So, how? What can I give them? And my answer to that has become, why would you want to give your kids something? They're going to need therapy to get over one day, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I understand that kids are concrete and I understand I've raised three of them and I, and I sort of could see that. But if your child is, is cognizant enough to ask a question like, you know, where does God come from or something like that, I think affirming the, the validity of the question, this, this is not a bad question. So many people ask that and and some people think this way, other people think that way. And, you know, to be honest with you, I I sort of think this makes sense, but I'm not exactly sure. And, and letting them a question like that may suggest they're ready for more than just Mm. where does rain come from kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and to, to begin cultivating some sort of a, um, a culture at home of a being comfortable with not having all those answers, even, even if the church expects you to give your children those answers. And this is why sometimes people have to leave churches or they make very judicious kinds of decisions about what's it going to look like if we stay in this church? How are we going to do this? And I, and I understand. Those those are difficult kinds of tensions. But, you know, if, if we raised our kids not to not wring their hands theologically mm-hmm. and and um and and encourage them to be curious and to explore and to to not think at the age of twelve what they thought at the age of seven. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and not to think at the age of forty what they thought at the age of seven. That, you know, God is big and and our thinking grows with our age and and we come to understand more and it's all okay. That's that's like a very non um uh, th- that's not a tenseful kind of way to grow up. I think it's not the evangelical way perhaps, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure evangelicalism has done a great job in this area. It's mm. a great answer. Yeah. I mean, I have a daughter, I have two grandchildren and my daughter is adamant <laughs> not to do, I mean, she, and she thinks really deeply about this, but she doesn't want to tell her three and a half year old daughter who's already prone to some anxiety. Yeah. It's okay. God's going to take care of you. Mm. She's not going to say that because bad things happen,
3: right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And
2: then, and that kid will figure it out when they begin to develop more cognitively around eight or nine or so, from what I understand. They're going to see that for themselves, and then, wow! Just kidding. Here's the real way to think of it. You have yeah. to think differently, maybe from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, yeah. Rob Bell. It's has a tough this- call, though.
1: He has a good line in one of his books, Launching Rockets, a book on parenting. He says he, their mission has been to raise their kids in such a way that they will have to unlearn as little as possible. Ah. Just minimize the unlearning yeah. that needs to happen later. <laughs> yeah, you know?
2: right. So right. to
0: that end, uh, maybe we can shift a little bit here to some topics about the Bible. I think okay. for a lot of folks, some of these issues can kind of crystallize in this area. So one way to tie it up would be, or to make the connection... Like, should I even really let my kids read the Bible on their own? I think that's a (laughs) worthwhile question. Just here you go. Here's some kids' Bible, and all the animals on Noah's Ark are smiling, but the real story is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people (laughs) are drowning, and it's devastating. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, that just—it's not as bad as giving them a loaded handgun, but theologically, perhaps, just like reading the raw scripture without guidance. Like, here's a little children's Bible that's like a question a parent might ask. What At right. what stage do I introduce, if the Bible is an important part of our faith community to some extent, at what right. stage do I introduce some of these stories and biblical ideas? What,
2: what age do I impose this on them against their will? So. <laughs> um, I think that's a very good oh. question. And I think that's part of the um, inerrantist dilemma of wanting to put this bible in front of them as quickly as possible and to start from the beginning.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Got to start with Genesis. Worst place to start for kids. This all, right. all I mean as, as a biblical scholar I will tell you all of the complicated problems of biblical scholarship you will visit in those first 10 11 chapters of Genesis. <laughs> yeah.
3: They're
2: they're difficult they it takes it does take a certain degree of sophistication. I don't mean getting a PhD. I just mean having a really good study Bible and maybe reading a couple of books. That's what I mean. Just, it takes some thinking to know what's going on in those chapters and they're not really for kids anyway. So um, a few years ago, I helped start a Bible um, curriculum for kids called telling God's story. And um, this was back in 2009 or 2010 and several volumes are out now, but I wrote a couple of them. Hardest writing I ever did was Mm. writing to little kids. I bet. Like, you haven't lived until you've explained a Pharisee to a six year old <laughs> and I mean and I mean explained a Pharisee, right not just they're bad people who hated Jesus, but just like, what is a Pharisee? Jesus was probably a Pharisee. So what is a Pharisee? How does they fit into that culture that's that's hard yeah, that's not easy and, um, no, it's not, but we decided to begin in their first few years, like maybe you know starting at five or six or so, the first four years, really just talking about Jesus and the stories that he told and the things that he did and and talking about some of the conflicts he had perhaps and focusing on that. And then later on, moving into maybe some of the other Old Testament stories when you know they already have sort of a foundation. And then in high school, maybe dealing with, they haven't gotten this far yet, but dealing with issues of history, frankly, yeah. and like the flood story or the, you know, the the Canaanite massacre and things like that. And, and uh, preparing them for a Bible that is not going to answer all their questions, but it's going to raise some and it's okay, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of the approach we were trying to take on that. So, so kids, I mean, you can have the Bible there all the time and Bible stories that read judiciously, I think. But I think if parents can get over the hump of feeling like the way to raise your kids Christianly is to tell them all the stories in the Bible and make sure they know the names and things like that, I don't <laughs> right. think that serves a purpose, frankly.
1: What, what was the name of that curriculum again, just in case parents want to look that up? Yeah, Telling God's Story. Telling God's Story, yeah. Yeah, awesome. right. Yeah.
0: So maybe just to drill down on one point, it's not really pushback, but just to get some clarification... Even the stories about Jesus, though, these miracle stories and all this in the Gospels, I mean, that's under pretty intense scrutiny from biblical scholars as to, and there's a whole Jesus seminar and make of that what you will, but people are asking good questions about, is this something Jesus really said? And do you do these things? And so just me personally, maybe I'm being too vulnerable, but Mm. um, I have struggled to just like inherit some ideas or oh, Jesus did this yeah he multiplied the food when mm-hmm. I don't know there are godly men and women that think differently about sure. that and, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I my I'm not even saying I've done all the legwork to come to a well-considered opinion on all of that but to just give that th- to them without them also going through that work is there something Have I done something bad by sharing those stories or? uh,
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't 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 think so.
2: No, no, I know. I I think that there are huge differences between reading stories of God commanded violence and that sort of thing. I, I think that's very different where. People glory in the killing of others in other nations, you know. I get why they do that in the Old Testament. It's Iron Age, it's it's how they thought, and that's how they communed with God. I understand that. But I think those are difficult kinds of things. But I think telling children, you know, the stories of Jesus, I think that they're valuable. And I think Mm -hmm. the critical mind will always see things from different angles and be able to explain those stories. On different levels. You know, like um, Jesus, um, not Jesus doesn't calm the storm. He rebukes the storm, which is Old Testament language for Yahweh controlling the waters, especially at creation and the flood and in the Exodus story. Mm -hmm. It's a very God kind of thing to do. And you can see that as, for example, possibly the gospel writer's creation to communicate the significance and the importance of jesus of nazareth to an audience that would understand the use of illusions and things like that i mean i can explain that very easily but the six-year-olds are not going to get that yeah but i i think there's something powerful in the stories for children too that who can make up their mind about some of those things maybe later on it it doesn't do harm First of all, I could be completely wrong with that explanation that I just gave. (laughs) I mean, I'm totally open to that. I mean, what Mm -hmm. do I know at the end of the day, right? But I can see, I can explain those things more anthropologically than supernaturally. I can do that. I could be wrong about that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no harm, so to speak, in children, I think, looking at Jesus as wonderful and fantastic and, and bigger than us, but still loving and giving that example of what God is like, for us, right? Yeah, so I think there's less of a problem with that, Clint, than there is with some other things of the Bible.
0: Okay, well, let's shift there. That's right, what I was about to say. So, you have this line also that I really like the Bible that tells us about God is a messy book that just won't behave itself. <laughs> and the word behave has been ruined for me by Austin Powers just when he kept saying, Oh, behave. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help but think I of never that,
2: once but. thought of that, but that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so imagine Austin saying that about the Bible. Oh behave. Uh, what do you mean by that? Like what does it mean to not behave? And just some examples for folks that might be like, What what does that mean for a book to not behave itself?
2: Yeah, it's just more sort of ch- my tongue in cheek way yeah. of saying, um, when the Bible doesn't do what we were taught it has to do. Yeah which is like all the parts make sense. In other words, there are no contradictions. Every writer's on the same page theologically. Um, There are no tensions between the Gospels. You know, when you read Samuel King's and their account of things, and then the book of Chronicles, they cohere perfectly. That's Well, no, they don't. The Bible doesn't behave itself very well, does it? I mean, Mm -hmm. according to that kind of a standard. I think it's fine just the way it is. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't act. I mean, again, Whoever's listening to this, I don't know. I'm not trying to make people mad here, not not really. But I still I have to say that I think in an errantist mentality of the Bible is one where the Bible really has to conform to a fairly narrow and rigorous set of standards that the behavior of the Bible itself simply won't recognize. It won't it won't fall into those categories, yep. and that's what I mean by you know the Bible doesn't behave itself. It's you, fine the way it is.
1: Were you at some point an inerrantist?
0: Um, oh, you stumped him. You put him good on the spot question. Yeah. Got him. Good, <laughs> good
2: Didn't good think good that question. would be the question that uh, got him. <laughs> I think my, my um, I'm trying to think back in my seminary days. I probably, uh, no, I wasn't in the sense of it's central to my faith. And if you don't believe it, there's something wrong with you.
3: Okay.
2: I probably spoke the language, but I remember, you know, after going to to graduate school and and dealing with some historical things, when I came back to teach in seminary, the way I approached it with the students was the Bible is inerrant in the sense that there's nothing in there that God doesn't want in there. Hmm. Which means the contradictions, you know, the, mm-hmm. the the historical problems, the scientific problems, the moral issues, all that kind of stuff.
0: God's okay with this and, being the Bible
2: we have, yeah. you mean? Exactly, right. Uh, but Which is not what evangelicalism means by inerrant. They it means it's more superintended by God, not to give misleading information, to make sure it all coheres. In that sense, I, I don't think I was ever an inerrantist like that.
1: Okay. C- could you maybe um, flesh yeah. out? inerrancy and inspiration is another word that gets used a lot. Um, and, and maybe I feel like what some people mean by inspiration, they maybe assume inerrancy goes along with it, but is it possible to believe in a, an inspired scripture without being that wooden inerrantist that you talked about a moment ago? And what, how would we even use that word now? You know?
2: That see that to me is the crucial question. How would we even use it? because I think see terms like you know inspired or revealed, yeah or authoritative i th- I think those are fine words to use, but they can't be freighted with sort of fundamentalist implications or assumptions. Mm-hmm. and again, i I don't say that to be polemical, but that's what I think that's I'm just telling you where I'm yeah, coming from. Please. Um, so, you know, to say that, uh, that the Bible is inspired, I wrote this book, Inspiration and Incarnation. And the point of which is that you can't you need to look at the word inspired within the context of the idea of incarnation, where God is embodied in reality and our here and now way of thinking and things like that. So the Calvinists do have a wonderful term about how God condescends to our level and speaks baby talk. That's what John Calvin said. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get people in the ancient world describing creation in Genesis 1 the way they do, because that's the way these ancient people thought, or the Adam and Eve story, or the flood story. This is the way they thought. Um, That's not an error. (laughs) It's just how they thought, right? Mm -hmm. Is it inspired? Yeah. Well, because inspiration is never about God's up here and downloads facts. And now you have objective facts. Inspiration is always an encultured process, an encultured act, which means it's going to look a lot like the people who are talking. Mm -hmm. So you've got this interesting kind of interplay. And I'm not making that idea up. I mean, actually, some pretty conservative Calvinists have thought that, like B.B. Warfield, for example, in the 19th century. There's a name. Yep. that nobody knows, but that's okay. <laughs> I've heard um, that one. yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and and um, so you have basically God's side and the human side are sort of working mysteriously together in some sense, but whatever we mean by inspiration, we can't take away the human contextual element, yeah. which is stamped all over the pages of the Bible. Yeah. So whatever inspiration means, it doesn't guard it doesn't guard against the human beings not being human. Yeah, yeah. It actually works with that somehow. How does that work? I have no foggy idea how that <laughs> works. okay And I'm sorry about that, but I don't think anybody else does either, but that's the idea. So you can inspiration you can use inspiration that way. And revelation works a certain kind of way. It's not God imposing now you have absolute truth. It's this, I think delicate communion between spirit and people where they begin seeing something that's beyond their own moment and beyond their own culture. I actually think that describes a large part of the Bible, Mm -hmm. right? The Bible is um, people enlightened for their time. I'll put it that way. Speaking things of God into themselves, into the world around them. At no point does it stand still, however. It's Mm -hmm. always sort of moving. And Mm -hmm. you see that within the Old Testament and you see it, between the Old Testament and then the Judaism that came before the time of Jesus, you see changes there. You see changes in the New Testament. You see changes in the early church. It's like this thing is always cycling like this and and revisiting things and coming up with new ideas and different ways of thinking. That's the Bible. And if you want to say that's a revelatory act, I'm all for it. As long as you take that process seriously, your definition of revelation has to take into account how the bible behaves and what it's doing right And it's not just a flat book of rules
1: mm-hmm. may i ask a follow-up because yeah, yeah. yeah so that that sort of um <clears throat> yeah cyclical moving forward or, or or i guess that would be progressive revelation really right the idea that that we are increasingly coming to understand who god is would do you help me with this help me if i'm thinking about this clearly or not um do we think that that sort of culminated in jesus or or you just said a moment ago that even the early church you start to see that and at least as i look around i still feel like god is continuing to reveal himself in newer ways and and change our thinking about things so is that the right way to think about it and if not the the question that's paired to it is has scripture stopped why that why is that the bible why is the is the canon closed right. Or, or right. is the sin of certainty part of it? You know, like, um, <laughs> you know what I'm, you know what I'm asking, though, right?
2: It would sell better. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind that. at all. Um, it's funny, you know. I, I, a question I get every year or two from one student somewhere in my classes is, this, "Why don't we just add to the Bible?" And I'm like, "Because nobody will read it." That's what, <laughs> it, it. Functionally, it wouldn't work that way. Yeah. But I understand what you're saying. Um, see, I think that the gospel is sort of a bright light that's shown on humanity Mm. and the gospel is bigger than what was written about it so i think what we have and again this is not a down the middle evangelical way of thinking and i realize that but that's uh, that's who i am um the reason we have four gospels the reason we have letters That um, the four Gospels that that don't always agree, they have different slants, they have different theologies of Jesus, right? Because they're trying to wrap their arms around something that's big. Um, You have the letters of Paul and others that likewise don't always see eye to eye. Just compare James with Galatians, and you'll see right away, it's like, these guys are coming from a different place altogether. It's pretty obvious. Um, So you have these internal discussions and debates within the New Testament. Um, and, and the fact that they're letters, you know, they're not theological treatises. We're, we're yeah. watching we're watching the gospel, that thing, being applied in specific instances. And I think that's the trajectory setter for the church. And you get, you know, as the centuries go on, that thing is happening all the time everywhere in different places. You know, the, the creeds of the church, you know, from the fourth and fifth centuries, they're And even earlier, I mean, they're wonderful statements, but they're another instance where you have the gospel, that bright light, that is being interpreted within the context of Neoplatonic philosophy. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing at all. People do this all the time. We're always interpreting the gospel within our social context. But it's, it's else and it's do? a good we, word, we but
3: yeah.
2: exactly that's yes. just it. We're people, and and if we have this is what one of the reasons I wrote inspiration and incarnation. If you have an incarnational view of the gospel, not only is it unavoidable, it's actually the way God works through people, not bypassing their culture, but actually within that, because God can handle it all, (laughs) you know? How do you know if you're right? You don't. There's the trick, folks. You don't know if you're right, but you walk by faith and you do the best you can. You try not to kill other people. This is simple. This is not rocket science here, you know? And then we get to talk theology. We get to discuss ideas and go back and forth for the betterment of ourselves and the people around us and the world we live in, right? And that those I think are good things. And that is a progressive revelation, I guess, you know, if we can put it that way. I'm I'm not always keen on the word progressive, because it has a lot of negative connotations. It's sure. sort of, it can be a condescending thing for a lot of people, sure. but more, I'd rather think God's just big, and God's out in front of us. And God's not behind us, we have to make sure we're keeping those things right. God's with us and ahead of us, and we have to um, try to keep up, so to speak, by asking ourselves the question, what does it look like to live this gospel, this bright light? What does it mean to live it right here and right now? Yeah. That's not a question that's going to be answered for you in Romans.
1: No, it can't be, right. That's Romans
2: right. will help. <laughs> Romans may give you things to think about, but God's bigger than Romans. God's bigger <clears throat> than the Bible. Yeah.
1: So
0: with this bright light language and shining a light on the gospel there and it's this illuminative thing, well, I guess someone might wonder, well, why – why are you highlighting the gospel or the person of Jesus as anything in particularly special? Like after all said and done with all this messiness and I've had all these questions about theology and faith, well, why why not just be an agnostic? Just, well, I don't know, maybe God exists and I hope, and I hope there's a eternal mm-hmm. place where everything I love will exist forever or something like that. But why, why follow well, yeah. Jesus? Why, what's so compelling That's about good. this figure?
2: Um, I think it's it's well, I mean I, I could answer that on several different kind of levels. One is just the fact that this is the context in which I was raised and this is the story that I know and it's my story and it's for me an existentially experientially um, compelling story, even if I have a thousand questions about it like you know the walking on the water and the feeding of the five thousand thing we were talking about before mm-hmm. right so I think that's part of a thing, uh, that, that's part of it, but it, it gives me an orientation to look at the world in a positive way and in a way that's not driven by fear. So that's just that a lot of the gospel interpretations are more driven by fear than by just openness and faith. So, what do you mean by I that? I think what, that's one thing.
0: What's the typical, what's the fear based interpretation? What do you mean by that? Well, the
2: fear is that if you're wrong, you go to hell, or if sure. you don't believe the right okay. way, you go to hell. I think I think it comes down to the afterlife. That's mm-hmm. that's it. And um, so, and I think that um, you know w- what what makes the okay. All religions are unique. All religions have distinctive marks. And I think, you know, many Christians that I've listened to over the years are very open to those marks of other religions where the Christian system has not always gotten things right. So that's one thing, to be in conversation with other religions, especially Judaism, you know, because it's so close to, to Christianity. Um, but one thing that I find just Uh, Attractive, because it's paradoxical (laughs) about the gospel, is this idea of suffering. Now, um, and not just suffering, but humiliation. And the idea of a, a religion in the first century that began with its founder being humiliated on a Roman cross. Yeah. And that God takes, and that God associates, the God of Israel associates with this figure. That's the New Testament faith. That's what they write about. But this has nothing to do with history. I don't know whether those things are real, whether they have it, but this, the testimony of the New Testament writers like, this is our beginning. That makes absolutely no sense in the first century. It really doesn't. And it makes no sense in Judaism because God is not one who voluntarily associates with shame and humiliation. Mm-hmm. But God is glorified. God is to be honored. If you shame God in the Old Testament, that's largely what what, what the Israelites do for large portions of the Old Testament in the, in the narratives anyway. They, God feels shame, and he has to correct that by punishing mm. and by putting himself back in the honor position rather than the shame position.
0: The poor bloke the who New dropped Testament the Ark I've of the Covenant. Been,
2: oh, yeah. No, seriously. Don't drop yeah. the Ark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or so him. many things it's like gee, calm down it's not that big of a deal you know but it's it, again it's it's the honor and shame dynamic that i find reversed with a vengeance if i can use that word um it's it's reversed in the new testament in ways that are paradoxical where paul calls himself a slave of jesus christ right, right. so that's that's a that's a self-humiliating thing to die to self to um uh, to think of others more highly than yourself to uh, uh and and just again the idea of the founding of the faith rooted in a humiliating death but he was raised from the dead okay but still how this began is like a non-starter mm-hmm. it is what does paul say in corinthians it's it's um uh, it's, it's, it's scandalous to the Greeks and to the Jews. It's an offense, right? Yeah. It's like an offense to one. It's just a stumbling block for one and like a foolishness to ridiculous. the Greeks, stumbling
0: block to the Jews, something like Thank that. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Foolishness to the Greeks. It, and it is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block. And it is. And I used to think, boy, why don't they get their acts together? No, they're right. <laughs> they're absolutely right. This is foolishness and a stumbling block. And, you know, this is why Paul in Romans has to, very early on, like in verse 16 of the first chapter, I think it's 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. Well, why would it be ashamed? Because of how it started. It, yeah. But he turns, he, he flips the table. It's, it's in the shame that the power of God is shown. That is like, I, okay, this is not my lead if I'm making up a religion, right? And <laughs> yeah. I find that to be very very intriguing and paradoxical and that then ties to the notion of uh, suffering and the this and again I don't say this lightly this is like you know I don't have a right to speak a lot about a topic like this but um, the, the the idea of how our suffering is something that actually draws us into the presence of God not away from the presence of God and I find those to be, Really, you know, beautifully reorienting away from self-promotion, right? The shame, honor thing, and then not thinking that there's something wrong with you when you're suffering.
3: Yeah, you
2: know, right. which, which is a notion that Job's friends had, you know, in the Old Testament. Job didn't, but Job's friends did. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's what I would say. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come at it in the conventional way that well, you're going to hell, you need a savior, because I mean, I think. I don't. I don't see that in the New Testament either. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as this is how they go about explaining the reality of Jesus.
0: So here, sorry if this is complicated, but I have a follow up here. So we were saying, okay, instead of explaining inspiration with the top-down method, like of course the authors of Genesis one, let's say, incorporated these details. A lot of other cultures had similar things, or maybe. Um, right. like God's, com- uh, command, I forget which book, maybe Joshua of wiping out the Amalekites or something. Uh, I don't need to work in to my theology that God wants me to kill infants rather like, of course he thought God told him to do that. <coughs> All the mm-hmm. other cultures advance now here though, in the new Testament, this seems to be uh, an exception to that idea that cause you led off with, uh, this is, this is weird for first century Palestine, it's not, of course, that people would uh, attribute this uh, humiliation to the founder of their religion or to God himself. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, can you just speak to Mm -hmm. that? Is that what we're saying? Like, that's what makes it compelling, or Christianity rather, or Jesus, that it's unique in that way. It's
2: what makes it it compelling to me. It makes it intriguing to me, the notion, right? Mm. The, The thing is that, Again, all re- all religions have distinctive markers. I shouldn't say unique, that's maybe too much, but all religions have distinctive markers. There are things about Christianity that are paralleled in other religions. There are things about what Jesus says and does that are paralleled in other religions, one of which is a miraculous birth, and one of which is rising from the dead. Mm-hmm. These are not unique in the ancient world, right? So I'm looking for things that what is it that makes Jesus and the gospel stand out? And it's it it's the willing willingly entering into a state of shame and humiliation yeah,
1: it's so unexpected
2: <laughs> it is and i'm not saying that's not proof that christianity is true that's not any, i'm not saying anything like that okay but to me it's like hmm that's compelling and i've asked people are there other religions that have done something like that in the past and um i haven't yet gotten an answer uh, th- that in the affirmative to that i mean there might be but if it's that hard to find, right. <laughs> maybe it's a minority voice anyway, you know, but, but this is, you know, the, the, the symbol of, of Christianity is a cross for heaven's sake, you know, that's, that is not an empty tomb. It's a cross. And, um, there is much more to that than, well, this is going to get me into trouble. No, eh, whatever. Sure. I'll, I'll never <laughs> see you guys again. What do I care? Um, <laughs> I think there's much more to the cross than simply God needs somebody to shed blood oh,
3: sure.
2: to cover over everybody's problems, right? Yeah, th- so that won't get you in um, trouble with us. <laughs> not with you guys. I'm thinking like I know people are listening, yeah. and they might not have ever heard this stuff before, and I, yeah. I'm very sensitive to that. But but I think that the the blood centered um, sacrificial atoning element of the cross in my opinion, where I stand now, owes an awful lot to the fact that that's the only Jewish vocabulary that New Testament writers had for describing something that was so utterly bizarre and unexpected. Mm -hmm. And just this is not the way the almighty, sovereign, glorified creator of the cosmos shows up. This is not how it's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think they had to do what they had to do which interpret it in ways that are culturally and and contextually meaningful, Hmm. which I take very seriously as a scholar. But I don't know if that's the only thing. And the history of the church will support that because there are at least five or six atonement theories, how the cross works. And they don't all emphasize the necessity of shedding blood uh, like a sacrificial lamb.
3: Yeah.
1: Hmm. Can I ask, you, you mentioned, this is backtracking a little bit, You said there's three words that you still think are good and and we should use. Inspiration, revelation, and authority. I don't think we got to authority, but I'm so curious how you feel. Would you like to? I would love to, (laughs) just for my own sake. I'd love to know how you think about scripture as authoritative. I I have thought for myself, you know, I don't know what it means for certain portions of scripture to be authoritative, like depending on what genre they belong to. What does it mean for a poem to be authoritative? You know, I don't know, but. Paul's epistles, should we think about those as authoritative or that little 16-verse letter to Philemon? Holy yeah. cow. Right. Yeah. So in what yeah. sense can we hang on to the word authoritative?
2: Well, I think, you know, the way that you were just describing authority is a different way that I think of authority. Yeah. So I don't I don't think of it as like, here's the line, do it. Because mm-hmm. you don't do what the Psalms say. You know, (laughs) the Psalms express things, right? So, and and plus, you know, I'm not so sure, you know, we should adopt some things in the New Testament about, you know, women in the church, even though Paul himself seems to be of a different mind, depending on what letter you read, right? So, I don't mean author—that's why, you know, an authoritative Bible in that sense requires inerrancy. Yes. You have to have it all hanging together, right? For me, authoritative is more—you— can't make a move without engaging the scriptural tradition. And you shouldn't want to make a move without engaging the scriptural tradition. Sometimes that means engaging it critically,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: but you're still engaging it because it's important. It's a value to the community. And the authority is not so much in telling you what to do or how to think about everything, but maybe just... it's, It's sort of like reading... Now, somebody's going to say, you think the Bible is just like any other book. I really don't think that, but this is just an analogy. You know, you read a book like The Lord of the Rings or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and there's this battle and, you know, the riders of Rohan are coming to the rescue of, you know, these poor people who are being accosted by the orcs and things like that. And, and you walk away and you don't say, I'm going to apply this authoritatively to my life. But it shapes you and yeah, yeah. how you think about yourself and how you think about the world around you. And I think the Bible does a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some parts of it, for me, do it much better than others. But it, it performs a role in not cerebrally giving you the doctrine that you now apply, but just sort of shaping how you think about a whole lot of things. And in that sense, I think it's authoritative. Yeah, that's But really not as helpful. a rule book.
1: Or, helpful thanks Well,
0: and the book we have behind us i failed to mention that sorry how the bible actually works you want to hold that up <laughs> there, there you go everybody that's, that's what good, it looks like
2: now people, <laughs> like. people <laughs> have been seeing it for an hour no. that's fine that's <laughs> need
0: to... now what you were just saying reminds me of the major thrust of that book and that this is a this is a wisdom tool so like when you were saying like a, it's a it's a it's a self-imposed obstacle i'm going to put in my way before i change my beliefs i'm giving it that pride of place in my life that i'm kind of giving it power maybe or authority to yeah. mm-hmm. to shape me and i thought of just a story that I, I come back to and i don't know how um apocryphal it is but that portion and i think it's oh shoot what book but it's uh like the casting the first stone bit of the woman caught in adultery, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: and like john yeah
0: so when i when i read that i now there's something about that that's Transcendent that impacted me. I now want to onboard Mm -hmm. that into my wisdom tool belt when I go about in the world. And that's not the end all be all. Maybe there is, I don't know, maybe there's a time to cast a stone. But what was so compelling about that scene is like, yeah, really reflect on your own Mm -hmm. heart before I cast a stone. I now want to bring that in to my Mm -hmm. workings of wisdom or something. I don't know. Could you explain that better? That whole process of thinking of the Bible as wisdom literature.
2: Well, but I think what you're describing, Clint, is that's the Bible's performing an authoritative function for you, mm-hmm. and you want to bring that into your tool belt, so to speak. So, that's, yeah, that that's, I mean, we don't do that with many other things,
3: right.
2: you know, and I don't do that with the newspaper. Actually, sometimes I do with, with you know, I, I want this to be a part of my life too, but um, that is, I think, a way of using scripture that is very healthy, and it's, looking to it um, when you're engaging it and bringing it in that's sort of a wisdom process at that point it's not an o- obeying a line it's you're actually discerning and thinking and cogitating and engaging and turning it around and to see okay here's this wonderful story about you know let those without sin cast the first stone right what does that look like to be a part of my own existence Well, don't cast any stones. Well, clearly it doesn't mean just stones. It means other things. It means, and and the question of where does it apply? How does it apply to my life? Are there places where maybe a stone needs to be cast? Right? Like you said, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to think like, what's this, what are the situations where this kind of an idea might be best? Or even just more simply, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. How exactly do I do that? You know, if they ask for a thousand dollars, do I give it to them? Well, probably maybe. I don't know if you have it. If they ask the week after that, the week after that, they keep asking for that. It's like you're getting suspicious. Like you're not loving them by doing that. You have to discern what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You have to discern what it means to love yourself. Yeah. The verses don't tell you what to do. You're Mm -hmm. immediately engaged in a process of discernment. That's the life of wisdom. And I think that's the thing the Bible actually pushes us to. It pushes us to to live a wise life where it's this spirit, maybe Bible tradition of the church, right? And our own experiences sort of come together, which is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. That's I mean, which I'm all over, believe me, or the Episcopalian three-legged stool, which is basically the same thing. They just combine a couple of the elements. But to me, that's that is that's an approach to living Christianly, which means you have to be comfortable with some ambiguity, because many times you just have to be uh, clear to yourself. I'm not really sure if this is the right way to go, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to do it because it seems right.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, as we kind of wrap up here, I'd love to kind of give our listeners some next steps. How would I like? Maybe I'm hearing some of these. Uh, messiness details about the bible for the first time and like what is going on Where are these guys talking about what are what are some good sources to trust because i can imagine just going to google and throwing in a question could lead who knows where the, yeah. the seas will toss you there and right. how to adjudicate whether this is a, a trusted source but also at the same time i don't want to just i don't know like go on JSTOR, some academic journal and that's right. going to be too above my pay grade to sort through. Like, w- right. what, what are people s- supposed to do? A couple of goofballs like Clint and Tony. We should listen to the Bible
1: for normal people. Oh. That's a good resource.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> that goes without saying. Yeah. yeah. No need to mention that. The only God ordained Bible uh, podcast. Uh, so um, I think one th- it depends on where people are in terms of their own like energy level and um, even background. But and it may be too simple to start here, but I think getting a good study Bible is a real big help because, and I mean, a good one that isn't defending the Bible but explaining things historically. And so, just reading footnotes because you're reading along and saying, Well, this doesn't really match with that. Mm-hmm. Well, you have footnotes that sort of explain that. Do you have
3: you one have... in mind?
0: Like, what? what is
1: one? Yeah, do you have a preferred?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, well, I have a few. I mean, I like, um, I I use the New Interpreter's Study Bible, which I think is very good for most books. And that's based on the New Revised Standard Version. Um, The HarperCollins Study Bible is very good, too. Uh, The New Oxford Annotated Bible is a very good study Bible. I also like the – I'll get – hold on a second here. Um, This is the the Jewish Study Bible here. Oh, neat. Which is um, on the Old Testament – and written by Jewish scholars, and that's a whole different world of reading sure. the Bible because they have no problem with things not fitting together. You know, they're just they yeah. revel in that stuff. So it gives you a different perspective. But a lot of these study Bibles have essays in the back, which if you want to take the time to read some of these essays about what are the Dead Sea Scrolls, what difference did they make? You know, what does purity mean in the Old Testament? You know, um, who wrote the Bible? That kind of thing. You know, this is like a seminary education for about $40. Mm, wow. You know, you, there's, yeah. a lot to, there's a lot to do there, and, and there are things to, um, to really ponder over and to learn from, and it's, it's a good place to start. Um, you know, I wrote how the Bible actually works and the sin of certainty, and the Bible tells me so for normal people, you know, mm, who maybe yeah. don't have a huge background but are having some questions. And, you know, I mention all sorts of people in those books and I have like bibliographies in the back and things that people might find helpful too. So, um, those, those are places to start. It's not my books, but I mean, I have resources in there too. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, podcasts, you know, um, again, if you don't know where to start, I mean, we do have a lot of good things on ours, but the guests that we have on, check them out, right? right? Go, go, (laughs) who are they and what makes them tick and what can I learn from them? And get ready for a journey. And again, that term is a very good one, but it's a process that takes time. But uh, you don't have to get anywhere fast. That's good. It's okay. Yeah.
1: Well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to our questions, giving us gracious answers to all of that. Uh, Absolutely. Appreciate you taking the time.
2: Yeah. Okay. And thank you too, Clint. Appreciate it.
0: Yep. And we'll uh, have some show notes for our listeners to plug some of those okay. resources. And, uh, well, yeah, anything ju- just real quick, particular that you're working on right now that you're pretty excited about oh, that yeah. you'd like anything us to Anything we should plug for
2: you? It's too far away. I mean, I'm going to start this summer, but I'm working on a book that I would take me 15 minutes to describe, which wow. is a problem. Okay. I got to get it down to a couple of sentences. Your elevator so. pitch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. It's about life. It's about life and belief and science and experiences oh, in the Bible. Right. It's weaving things together, sort of. Can't I'm wait to read it. Catch the vision for it. Yeah. Great. I can't wait to write it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, well th- Thanks, Pete. Thanks so appreciate much, Pete. It. Have a good All rest you, of your day. I appreciate
3: it.